All right. So we're continuing our series through John, and I'm reminded of a really important question that each generation needs to ask about following Jesus. And that is, what is true Christianity? And the reason that every generation uniquely needs to answer that question is there's a lot of different counterfeits that slip in and vie for our attention for what true Christianity is. And just like in Jesus' day, one of the primary counterfeits that comes to play is that Christianity is primarily a political movement or about our materialistic provision. So in Jesus' day, people saw that he had miraculous power, that he was able to do signs, that he filled their bellies with bread. And because of that, their immediate response was not to do what the signs required that they do, and that is to see through the sign to the giver of the sign, to bow their knee before him and believe in him. But instead, they wanted to make him a political ruler who would meet all of their materialistic needs. So in our day, both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party are in some ways aligning themselves with Christianity and vying for our attention to say, we can make everything right. And it's been said that the new religion of our day is politics. And into that reality, Jesus speaks and says, no, 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 not so fast. My kingdom is not of this world. And he's going to say to us through this text that Christianity is believing him. Christianity, at its essence, is believing Jesus. And so we're going to see three different aspects of what believing Jesus means. The first thing we're going to see is that to believe is the work. Look with me at verses 25 through 29 again. It says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give to you. For on him, God, the father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So remember, we're picking this story up after Jesus has walked across the lake to get to the other side. And the people who saw him on the other side of the lake saw that he did not get in the boats with his disciples. And so they're wondering, how did you get to the other side of the lake? which is a very legitimate question. And Jesus, in classic Jesus form, dodges the question. And he asks them, why are you here? And his essential accusation is 
that they're following him, not because they saw the signs. Remember, a sign is meant to point you to Jesus to bow your knee down to him. But instead, they're following after him, he says, because their material needs were met. Their bellies were full of bread. And so what they're looking for is more bread. So Jesus has that conversation with them, and then they want to know a simple question that people have been asking ever since. And they say, okay, you're rebuking us. You're telling us that we're wrong about this. What must we be doing to be doing the works of God? What must we be doing to be right with God? If we're doing it wrong, what must we be doing to be doing it right? And Jesus gives them a surprising response. He says, I'm not interested in your doing. I'm interested in you believing in me. See, what Jesus is getting at is that our doing is related to what we are trusting in. And we all have something that we are functionally trusting in our heart. Sure, we may say we believe in Jesus. We may say we believe in Christianity. But often, functionally, our hearts are resting on something else to make us right. Which is the source of much of our misery. And so, these people were, like many people are today... Resting their trust in their religious performance. They think if we could do the works of God, if you would just give us a checklist, tell us exactly what to do, then we would take that checklist and instead of getting it wrong, we would be able to get it right. Maybe we need to read the Torah more. Maybe we need to attend the synagogue more regularly. Maybe we need to not skip our prayers. Maybe we need to eat a more kosher diet. Whatever it was for them, there's a version of that for us today. And some of us have traded in belief in Jesus for the identity of being good, moral, upstanding Christian people. Now, why do we do that? It's because we think if we're good enough, then we will be accepted. It could be by God, but more likely it's accepted by the Christian community that we're a part of. So we want to keep our noses clean so that other people look at us and they say, you're doing a great job. And we're building this identity here on earth based on what we do. Now, I think some of us fall into that camp, but it's equally likely that we fall into the camp of doing the right thing from a secular perspective. And so there's a powerful narrative out in culture about how you can make yourself right. See, if you follow the right checklist and do the right things, then you're going to make enough money And you're going to be able to live in a beautiful house and buy the dream cars that you want to have. And if you do that, then your neighbors will look at you and they will envy your life. And if you do all of the right things to make the right money, then you will be right. Or maybe you're a student and you think, okay, I get the right major 
and I take the right classes, and I get the right grades, and I get the right accolades because of my grades, then finally I'll be enough. And people will recognize me for how unique and how special I am. And then finally, I will be justified. Okay, maybe the most powerful narrative in our culture isn't related to money or grades, but it's related to romance. So it's like, okay, if you can be the best sexual partner, if you can be beautiful enough and you can be romantic enough and you can find the right partner for your life or even for the moment, it will fulfill you. Do you guys know T. Swift totally buys into this narrative? Okay, my daughters are getting old enough. They're listening to this around the house. So, okay, so here's what Taylor Swift says. Here's, here's how she says you can justify your existence. Okay, her song, Love Story, right? She says, Romeo, save me. They're trying to tell me how to feel. This love is difficult, but it's real. Don't be afraid. We'll make it out of this mess. It's a love story. Baby, just say yes. Okay, notice what she does, though. She steals Christian terms. And she's saying, Romeo, this guy that's not going to save her, but's going to break her heart and wreck her life, just like all of the other guys that she's dated. Okay, listen. She's saying, he can save me. Why are all these young ladies around our country and throughout the world buying into this? Because they're not just looking for a romantic partner. They're looking for salvation. They're looking to be saved. And Jesus is saying, listen, the way to be saved is not to do It's not to be beautiful. It's not to be successful. It's not to be religious. It's not about a checklist of any kind. It's not about who you are or what you do. He's saying this is the way to salvation. Believe. Believe that the only Romeo... The only great love story that will satisfy the desires of your heart is that God sent his son to the earth, not to save people who can keep a checklist or be enough, but people who can never be enough. Okay, so you see, there's two ways that you can possibly be lost. There's a religious way that you can be lost by trying to justify yourself through your religious performance. There's also a secular way that you can be lost in trying to be saved by money or sex or power or fame or whatever it is. Now imagine that you are in the ocean and you are drowning. And there is a Coast Guard helicopter hovering above you. Now imagine that you think there is no way that that Coast Guard helicopter can save me. But the best way for me to be saved is to try to swim myself. Now, there's two different reasons that you could be swimming. One is you could be kind of scared of the Coast Guard and you could be swimming away from them. I'm going. That's sort of the secular way, okay? 
The other way is you could be swimming for your life, like believing that you could reach the shore. The only way that you're going to be saved is completely counterintuitive. It's to throw up your arms. It's to stop swimming. And Jesus is saying counterintuitively, the way to be saved, this is the work of God, believe. Now he's saying it's work. And the reason he's saying it's work, and this is affirmed all over the Bible by the Apostle Paul, by saying that we must fight the good fight of faith or work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Or a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus. Here's why we need that exhortation over and over and over again. Because the default mode of the human heart is to try to work for our salvation. The most difficult thing for us to do is to stop working and to just believe. But Jesus says the only way to be saved is to let him save you, not try to save yourself. So to believe is the work. The second thing we see about belief is that to believe is food. Look with me at verses 47 through 58 again. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Okay, so there's this reference in the passage to bread that came down from heaven. And so the people are saying, okay, Jesus, you're telling us that the only work we have to do is to believe. So what reason do you give us for believing? Our fathers got bread raining down from heaven. If you did something like that, then we would believe. Now there's an irony in this. Because Jesus has just fed them with a few loaves and a few fish. He fed 20,000 people. He just did a miraculous provision, much like the manna in the wilderness, which proves his point. You will never believe in Jesus purely based on miraculous provision or materialistic 
provision. Why? He gives a, a very straightforward answer. Here's the reason. Because if your belly is filled once, it's going to need to be filled again. And it doesn't matter how much materialistic provision you have, it can't solve your basic problem. Here's your basic problem. Because you're a sinner, you are under a curse. And you deserve to die for your sin. So even if your belly is full you're still going to die. And that problem is not addressed by politics, by having a king, by having a next meal, even by having great medical care. That problem is only addressed by Jesus. He alone has the words of eternal life. And so he's speaking to them at two different levels, and he's saying, listen, guys, I am the bread of life. I'm the bread that came down from heaven, except for the bread that I give to the world, which is myself, is different than the manna that came down in the Old Testament that people ate, and it's different than the bread that I just gave you across on the other side of the sea. The bread that I give you gives you eternal life. And then he gets weird and starts using this cannibalistic imagery to drive home his point. He's like, okay, guys, let me make this plain to you. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't have eternal life. I remember hearing my pastor when I was just out of college, it was a small Presbyterian church just outside of Muncie, Indiana, preach on this text, I'll never forget it, because he said that the Greek word for eat, flesh, is closer to the English word munch. It's like, Jesus is getting real graphic here. It's like, unless you munch on my flesh and drink my blood... You can have no life in you. Now, either we have to decide at this point, okay, this is getting kind of silence of the lambs, like shut the Bible. This is incredibly creepy. And we should not listen to this guy at all because he is advocating self-cannibalism. He's about to kill himself and everyone's about to have a Jesus barbecue. That's weird. Or he is using a vivid illustration that will stick into our minds and change our lives forever. It's one or the other. Here's what I think Jesus is getting at. Jesus is giving us a veiled prediction of his death. See, in order to eat the flesh of an animal... You have to kill it. And then, after eating it, you can get the nutrients from that animal. Here's what Jesus is saying. I have come for you to consume me. The way that you consume food. I've come not 
to require something, not to give you a to-do list so that you can save yourself. I have come to completely give myself over to you so that in a spiritual sense, by eating me, you would live forever. But the only way that you can eat me is if I die. He's saying, I'm going to die for you because I didn't come to be served by you. I came to be served up on a platter for you. He's saying, so when you see me on the cross, you know what I'm doing. It's my life for yours. Guys, as I was thinking about this, I was reminded of one time when my family, when I was in high school, had a goat roast at our house. We invited a bunch of people that we knew who were African over to our house. And we had five and a half acres and we had this big meadow by our house. And the way that these African gentlemen that we knew did a goat roast is that the goats start off alive at the beginning of the party. And then they're dead at the end of the party. But these African guys we learned who were at our house had participated in a goat roast before, but had never been the executioners at a goat roast. So there was this scene where my dad, who was a veterinary pathologist, which means he's like animal CSI, cuts open animals to see why they died, very familiar with blood, is standing out in the meadow with these African gentlemen. I'm standing with them. And he's asking them, okay, guys, who's going to kill the goats? And these guys are all looking at each other like, I don't want to kill the goats. I don't want to kill the goats. My dad's like, okay. The traditional African way of doing this is slit the throat. My dad's like, listen, guys, just let me go inside and get a a gun. You don't want to do it this way. And they're like, no, no, no. This is the traditional African way of doing it. If you're at an African goat roast, you have to slit the throat. And so they're arguing, they're arguing, they're arguing. My dad's like wanting to go in and get the gun. No one's willing to grab the knife to kill the goats. So my dad finally just got tired of it. He's a good old farm boy. And just grabs one of the goats by the scruff of the neck and just slits his throat. And it starts bleeding all over the place. And then he did it to the other one. I won't get into too much detail because I can already tell some of you are going to pass out if I do. So I'll spare you the details. But here's the point. At the end of that process... We ate delicious goat meat. It was good for us. It was terrible for the goats. It was awful for the goats. I wish I could go into more detail on it, but it was, just trust me on this. Blood was spurting everywhere. It was bad. Bad for the goats, good for us. Here's what Jesus is saying. It's going to be bad for me. And in it being bad for me, in 39 lashes being applied to my body, in nail-pierced hands and nail-pierced feet, will be your life. Nothing but the blood of Jesus will cover you from your sin. No amount of doing of any kind can save us. Only those who have the humility to hear the beauty in the words of Jesus will be saved. Unless you eat his flesh 
and you drink his blood, there is no life for you. Because on the cross, what Jesus did for us is he said, I'll take your sin on me. All of your wrongdoing, all of your brokenness, all of your mistakes on me. And in my death, you will find life because I will give you all that I've done right. All the nutrients that are in me will be consumed by you so that in God's sight, you will be righteous. I will be consumed. You will be fed. Will you believe this? See, to believe is our food. And finally, in summary, we see Jesus reiterate some of the same points again when he says that to believe is life. Look at verses 63 through 69 with me again. It says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by my father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Okay. So if it's true that we must give up our doing, fully trust in Jesus in such a way that we would consume him the way that we consume food. How do we go from being the rational Western people that we are to believing such a thing? Here's what Jesus says. Something quite offensive to our pride. It's the spirit who gives life. Your flesh is no help at all. Do you know what the flesh is? It's you. How do you get saved? You can't do it. There is nothing that you can do. There is no way for a human being to change the human heart. See, yes, it's as easy as just throwing up your hands and believing in Jesus. But there is no way that you can do that. You're too proud, too stubborn, too obstinate, too self-willed, too wanting to justify your own existence, too proud. Jesus says, you are desperately helpless. None of the things that you've been doing are getting you any closer to God. The very things that you think have been getting you closer to God, 
that you think have been justifying you, that you think have been making you right with God, are only digging you a deeper grave. The only way that you can believe in Jesus is if it has been granted to you by the Father. Remember, Jesus said to Nicodemus a few chapters back that the only way to be saved is to be born again. Now, let's just do a thought experiment. How much did you have to do with your first birth? We live with this all the time, right? We didn't decide to be born. We didn't decide what gender we were. We didn't decide where we were born. We had nothing to do with our first birth. It was a complete gift. Your existence statistically is nearly impossible. And in the same way, Jesus is saying, for you to be born again is fully and completely the work of God. It is his work alone. Which is, it turns out, very good news. You know why it's good news? Because if God didn't save people, no one's getting saved. So you might have come here this morning full of sin, full of excuses, running as fast as you can or swimming as fast as you can or whatever metaphor you want to give away from God. Here's the good news. Maybe it sounds like bad news to you right now. You can't run faster than God. He's going to catch you. Maybe you're here this morning because sort of apart from your will, God is drawing you. God is changing you. God is making you new. And it seems like that it's something that's happening to you from above as much as it's something that you're deciding or choosing along the way. God rescues sinners. Our hope is not as a church in our ability to put on a slick show or do ministry in such a way that compels people into the kingdom using some materialistic or external means. We believe God saves sinners. I was reminded of this as I was thinking about the testimony of a famous Christian by the name of C.S. Lewis. And he's talking about his conversion. And he describes himself in the passage I'm about to read as a reluctant convert. This is in his biography called Surprised by Joy. And I think it offers hope to those of us who are outside of the kingdom at the moment. He says this, you must picture me alone in that room in Magdalen, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night 
the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. I did not see then what is now the most shining and obvious thing. The divine humility will, which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet. But who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape. Do you see what C.S. Lewis is saying? Because God requires nothing of us to be saved. There's no list. There's no to-dos. That means anybody can get in on this. Because God is humble in heart. And he desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, do I know how to unwind this ball of twine that is theology related to predestination and all these things? No, I'm not even going to try. But here's what I'm saying. Jesus is saying, you can't come to the Father unless he draws you. Salvation from beginning to end is the work of God. And no one is too far gone. So if God will not disqualify you, then why don't you do the work that he requires, which is so simple that even a child can do it? Throw up your hands this morning and say, save me. Now, I also think there's an application for us crusty Christians, those of us who got pretty comfortable being saved. Okay, here's what I think it is for us. To repent of the things that we have begun to lean on again. That we've begun to trust in again. Maybe it's a secular trust. Maybe it's a romantic relationship or it's money. Maybe it's a religious trust. It's your Bible reading plan. Man, you've really done a great job. Kept up with that all year. You've been patting yourself on the back. But our eyes need to lift from ourselves to Jesus once again. And we ask him, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for meeting us here in your word. Thank you that the words that you speak to us are spirit and life. God, that you save sinners. When we take an honest look at ourselves, our desires, our wants, our tendencies, we see that the last thing in the world that any of us would do is run toward your rescue, Jesus. And so we need more than just divine assistance. We need divine rescue. We need you to save us from ourselves, from our flesh, from our sin, from our brokenness, from our tendency to rest our hope in anything but you and only you as a last resort. God, would you draw us because you are humble, not because we're good. In Jesus' name, amen.